Episode 32 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 6.7, Nephite Western Campaign, Reconquest, Battle Analysis, Second and Third Battles of Kumani. This episode returns us to the Nephite Western Theater of the Amalekiahite War. I am trying to cover this war as chronologically as possible, and that is why we address each of the battles in the order that we do. We left this theater at the end of episode 30, or part 6.5, with the defeat of the largest Lamanite army in the theater, which came from the city of Antipara. Antipas was dead, and Helaman too seemed to have taken over as the Nephite chief captain and theater commander. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Overview of the Campaign The defeat of the army from Antipara led almost immediately to an epistle from Amaron, giving credence to the supposition that Amaron was commanding in the West. The epistle, as we are told in Alma 57 verses 2 and 3, discussed a desire to exchange the city of Antipara for prisoners. Helaman too refused the request, stating that they could take the city with the forces they had, and he made a counteroffer to exchange prisoners. Amron refused the counteroffer and subsequently withdrew the forces from Antipara to reinforce other cities. This sequence of events, which ended the 28th year of the reign of the judges, placed the Nephites in a strong position to regain the rest of their land in the Western Theater. Despite all of this positive news, there was no guarantee of success, and Helaman II, as the new senior chief captain, still was to face some very significant challenges, to the point of him experiencing near despair. In summary, the Nephites regained Antipara through the defeat of the Lamanite army described in episode 30, and Amron consolidated his position in the theater. The Lamanites retained three cities, Kumani, Zeezrom, and Manti. This episode deals with the fighting associated with the city of Kumani. This fighting is captured in what I label as four separate battles. The close siege and capture of Kumani, or the second battle of Kumani, the first battle with prisoners, the second battle with prisoners, and the third battle of Kumani. We are told about these four battles in Alma chapter 57, verses 7 through 36. Geographical Setting, Location We do not really know much about the geography associated with Kumani. For the sake of providing a logical position to the city, I suppose that it existed on the route between Manti and Antipara and was one of the southernmost cities of the Nephites, right up against the wilderness separating the Nephites from the Lamanites. I will address a few more details in the tactical events portion of this episode. This battle involves the close siege of a city. I will explain the meaning of this phrase in the technical context section of this episode. Such an action suggests that the terrain allowed for a close siege, possibly that the city had limited logical ingress and egress routes so that these could be cut off by a besieging army. Terrain slash vegetation. No details are given in the record. The battles happened around the city of Kumani, and therefore walls, as I imagine that there were, as a form of man-made terrain, play a part in this effort. 
vegetation is always assumed in the form of woods and brush close outside the walls and the trails. Who was involved? Those who were involved were Nephite and Lamanites, with the Lamanites having three forces, one that occupied Cumani at the beginning of the fighting, one that sought to reinforce Cumani and was defeated, and one that came to reinforce Cumani at the end of the fighting. Nephite Forces We are told in Alma 57.6 that in the 29th year of the reign of the judges, Helaman II received 6,000 men as reinforcements for his army in addition to provisions. He also received 60 Ammonites who were added to his 2,000 stripling warriors. All of these men came from the, quote, land of Zarahemla, close quote, and from, quote, the land roundabout, close quote, as well as a small number of reinforcements for the Ammonite forces who obviously came from the land of Minon. The losses from the Battle of Antipas's fall were not stated, though it may be safe to assume that the addition of 6,000 men may have placed the total Nephite armies in excess of the 10,000 number which Antipas enjoyed before his final battle with the Lamanites. This number had the additional responsibility of guarding the city of Antipara. So, the usable force for offensive operations was probably comparable to or slightly larger than what Antipas enjoyed. I estimate the army to be about 11,000 to 12,500. The description of the lead-up to the fighting around Kumanai provides one of the few times where a Nephite commander praises the strength of his force. Helaman II says that his force was strong, and he refers to the enormity of his numbers. Clearly, he believed that he had a numerical advantage over his Lamanite opponents. After the capture of Kumanai, the Nephites needed to deal with thousands of Lamanite prisoners. This generated serious problems that included the prisoner revolts and the deaths of thousands of Lamanite prisoners. Helaman II divided his force and sent a group under the command of a man named Gid to lead the prisoners to the land of Zarahemla. We are not told the size of this force, but it had to have been large, maybe 4,000 or larger. They were larger than the number of Lamanite prisoners. Lamanite Forces The Lamanites consisted of the garrison of Kumani and the relieving armies. There were two Lamanite relieving armies, one that is surprised and defeated in Alma 5710, This group is simply described as provisions and could be considered more of a logistics or resupply than a relieving force. The second army is mentioned in Alma 5717. This was described as a numerous army of men along with provisions. The estimates of the forces go as follows. About 4,000 to 8,000 were defending the city of Kumani. Many of these, probably in the hundreds, were lost in the attempt to break the close siege. Another 2,000 plus were lost as prisoners who fought against their Nephite captors. So, about 2,000 to 6,000, I lean closer to the 2,000 number, were marched toward Zarahemla. The relieving Lamanite army was possibly as large as 10,000 to 12,000 strong. If my numbers are right then these are some large battles that were fought in rather chaotic circumstances, as we shall see. Key Leaders in the Battle, Nephite Forces The commander of the Nephites was Helaman II. We have discussed him and his character in great detail in episode 30, 
or part 6.5 of this series. The new Nephite character is a subordinate commander named Gid. Gid was a commander of the Nephite prisoner guard force. Gid was a person about whom we have little information. He is named, which is something important, yet no details of his life were given. We don't know where he came from. We know only about his character. He was given a task and a purpose, as we will discuss later, and he was comfortable enough in his command to recognize that it was more important to accomplish his purpose than his task. We will come back to this point several times in this episode. It is interesting to note that one of the cities in the east was called Gid. Was that city named after this commander? We don't know. I feel comfortable assuming that Gid was a man of influence and probably tribal importance. He could have had a city named after him. It is interesting, though, to consider that if that city was named for him, why was he fighting in the west and not in the east? It is also possible that it was only a coincidence that there was both a city and a man with the same name. Lamanite Forces There are no named Lamanite commanders in this battle. The only Lamanite leader named is Amron, who was king of the Lamanites. He is named in Alma 5717 as the one who sent down the provisions and army of men to relieve the siege of or regain Cumani which kind of implies to me that he was present in the Western theater. I think the Mormon did this to limit the Lamanite characters. In his metaphor, they serve as the negative example. Mormon did not seem inclined to emphasize those negative examples, except in cases of specifics, as we have discussed regarding Amalickiah or Jacob II in the last episode. Grand Strategy Context At times, there seemed to be rapid communication between the Nephites and Lamanites. We read of epistles being exchanged and negotiations being conducted, as if they happened in a matter of days or weeks, and with some level of common knowledge of what was happening across the entire theaters of war. At the same time, there appears to be ignorance on the part of specific commanders of what was happening at the larger scale. Helaman too points out, especially at the end of his epistle to Moroni, that he was not privy to the happenings elsewhere in the war. It is not clear how much of this was cultural humility or how much was an honest observation of reality. That said, we are now in the 29th year of the reign of the judges. The Lamanites lost their largest army in the western theater north of Antipara, abandoned Antipara to consolidate their defensive lines and lost their largest army in the Eastern Theater and the city of Mulek. Amron was clearly on the defensive at this point. He consolidated in the West to make sure that he didn't lose any more cities, meaning he wanted to maintain Kumani. Conversely, the Nephites felt as if they were in a position of strength. In particular, Helaman too felt that he could mount a close siege I want you to compare this performance to what Moroni will do at the city of Gid as we discuss that in two episodes to come. Moroni did not attempt to conduct a siege at all. Why not? As I said, we will get to that point down the road, but I cannot help but wonder if this was another opportunity used by Moroni to put to use lessons learned from the West to practice in the East. Theater Context Helaman II placed emphasis on getting Kumani through fixing his force, both in time and space, on a specific objective, 
the capitulation of Kumanai. I think that Kumanai was important geographically as a necessary route to Manti. This is only supposition, as we will discuss in our leadership portion. It is also possible that Helaman II did what he did because he was an inexperienced battlefield commander who was not studied in the arts of war. Regardless, Kumanai was the objective in the Western theater. Operational Context At the beginning of the podcast, I identified that there are four separate battles in this episode. One, the close siege and capture of Kumanai, or the second battle of Kumanai. Two, the first battle with prisoners. Three, the second battle with prisoners. And four, the third battle of Kumanai. In both the first and fourth of these battles, there were other parts The Second Battle of Kumanai included a passive close siege, a defense of the siege line, capture of a relieving Lamanite force, maintenance of the siege line, and surrender of the city. The parts of the Third Battle of Kumanai are less clear, as we will see in a few minutes, but it included, at a minimum, defense of the city, loss of control of the city walls, and reinforcement by the returning guard force. It is probable that the battles with prisoners were not only single-part events. I mention this here to emphasize, as I have in previous episodes, that there was a lot of detail left out, but still hinted at in the record as we have it, and these remaining hints have value and meaning in our study. Technical Context We have three technical context items of significance, passive siege, weapons, and the possibility of formations. We will address each of these in this order, as this is how they were manifested in the battles. There are two kinds of sieges that ancient armies conducted, active and passive. An active siege was the type one might attribute to a movie. It had people trying to batter through gates, go over, under, or through walls, and featured things like battering rams, catapults, ballista, or even trebuchets. There is only one record of this kind of siege with any detail in the Book of Mormon, the Second Battle of Noah, which we discussed in episode 26 or part 6.1 of this podcast series. In that battle, we didn't see any siege machines for ramming or hurling. There were no ladders for going over the walls and no tools or special training for going under or through the walls. It is possible that Amalekiah developed and trained these skills and abilities in his army following the defeat at Noah, but if he did, we don't have the details. And I would argue that since the Lamanite army never demonstrated a particular ability for subordinate unit maneuver, that active siege in the Hollywood level of complexity was probably out of the question. What is more common in the Book of Mormon is a passive siege. This is less exciting in the sense of movies. It typically involves an army encircling a city or area, as we will see in the Book of Ether, as one army laid siege to a wilderness, to prevent the receipt of provisions or reinforcements. There are several ways to break such a siege. If the besieged army was strong enough, then it may try to sally forth from the city and attack the besieging army itself and break through. Another way was to have a relieving force come and attack the besieging army. Usually, besieged cities tried some combination of these two options. A third approach was to wait out the besieging army. 
If a city had a good internal water and food supply, then it might last for years under siege. We talked about forms of this in part one of this podcast series when discussing sieges in the ancient Near East as expressed in the Old Testament. There are also close and far sieges. This was based off the distance between the besieging army and the besieged city. The distance was often driven by the terrain and vegetation. If a city had limited means of entering or exiting and the vegetation was relatively open, then a besieging army could be at a distance from the city and still prevent supplies from entering. The terms close and far are based off of contact. A close siege is within contact of the enemy. That may be contact from missile fire or simply visual contact. We have talked about weapons before, but I want to briefly address them again. Weapons in the ancient world, and even up to the advent and major production of firearms, could be rather rudimentary. If you think of a club or a spear, they are only sticks. One a heavy stick, and one a long stick with a pointed end. Obviously, an ancient army didn't go into battle with sticks. They invested tremendous amounts of time crafting weapons. However, I want to refer you back to episode 3, or part 1.2 of this series, when I laid out some rules of ancient warfare. I gave seven rules then, and they are as follows. 1. You can only kill as far as you can reach. 2. A commander can only command that which he can control. 3. Contest of champions. 4. Wars were not necessarily for societal destruction. 5. Campaign season, weather and harvest. 6. Open field battles by mutual consent. 7. There is no battlefield medicine. I invite you to re-listen to that episode for a reminder. The rules come about three quarters of the way through the episode. The rule that matters most in this episode is rule number one, though several others are relevant as well. If weapons were often simply sticks and you can only kill as far as you can reach, then a guard force has limited advantages over prisoners when moving through wooded or heavily vegetated terrain on the way to Zarahemla, for example. Also, prisoners who were willing to sacrifice their lives to facilitate the escape of others could more easily do so under such conditions. The Nephite guards did not have automatic firearms that could expend hundreds of rounds in a matter of minutes. They had swords and spears and maybe bows, but those weapons could not keep off a determined breakout, as we will see shortly. Finally, let's talk about formations and why they have benefit. For those familiar with ancient warfare, particularly the Greeks and Romans, formations are not new to you. The Greeks fought in a linear formation referred to as a phalanx. By banding together, they provided mutual protection as the shields protected both the bearer and his neighbor, and they presented a bristling wall of spear points. The Romans fought in smaller units of increasing size called centuries, maniples, cohorts, and then legions. The Romans, unlike the Greeks, could break off subordinate organizations to move on different paths and possibly to attack from different directions. I refer you back to the rules of ancient warfare as separating off subordinate groups had problems as it had dramatic effect on the ability to control the battles, so this wasn't done that often. As a note, this is what makes the stories of battles with separated and subordinate commands in the Book of Mormon so amazing. 
it wasn't common in the ancient world, certainly not as common as the percentage of detailed stories in the Book of Mormon might lead one to believe. That might be because Mormon has given us details on every time it was done and has not given detail on the dozens upon dozens of times it wasn't or such separation failed. Back to formations. A formation was about a strength of a unit that was greater than the sum of its parts. It was about creating an integrated force that combined the efforts of many into one focused purpose. To fight in a formation required training and discipline. Why discuss formations at this point in this series? I think that this battle hints at the possibility of a group using formations in battle. Did the 2000 stripling warriors or sons of Helaman fight in formation? The limited nature of the Book of Mormon record prevents readers from gaining a full understanding of the actual techniques used by the Nephites in warfare. The technique of the Lamanites has been discussed in previous episodes insofar as they seemed to use a single mass formation. I say formation with quotation marks as the Lamanites did not have anything like the Greek or Roman formations and seemed to have moved and attacked as a mass of humanity. In episode 12, or part 3.2, we discussed the fact that Zenith placed his men in ranks, according to age, which might imply that the Nephites probably did some sort of organization of men, other than placing them simply in a mob. There was conscious thought of the organization of the warriors. They might have fought in some formations similar to the linear formations of the Greeks or the early Romans. In a formation, all fighters carried a shield in the same hand, usually the left, and carried a weapon in the same hand, usually the right. This meant that the right side of a fighter was protected by the shield of his adjacent companion. This required discipline to trust that each person would do his assignment. The comments made by Helaman II in Alma 5721 give the possibility that the necessary level of discipline existed within the this subgroup of Nephite warriors. The fact that Helaman II said they, quote, did obey to perform every word of command with exactness, close quote, hints at the possibility that the 2,000 stripling warriors might have fought in a disciplined formation, which allowed them to perform so well when the rest of the army was struggling, as was happening in the Third Battle of Cumani. The use of disciplined formations made significant differences for both the Greeks and the Romans. It allowed individuals who may have been smaller and weaker to band together in a way that allowed them to dominate physically larger people. Specific examples of Roman armies outperforming German armies throughout a series of battles are important in appreciating the benefits of disciplined formation fighting. Whether the young Ammonite soldiers used formations is speculative. One thing is certain. They were more effective as a single fighting force than any other portion of the Nephite army under Helaman II's command. Their faith certainly played a role, but their discipline was also a contributor that could have been honed through the use of mutually supporting formations. Tactical Events Now let's talk about these battles. I will address the events by discussing each of the four battles or engagements. The Close Siege and Capture of Kumani, or the Second Battle of Kumani, the first battle with prisoners, the second battle with prisoners, and the third battle of Kumani. Second battle of Kumani, Alma 57, verses 7 to 12. The second battle of Kumani had three key parts to it. 
First, Helaman II had his army surround the city and began what I characterize as a close siege. Second, the Lamanites attacked the Nephite besiegers. Third, the Nephites defeated a relieving Lamanite force. With his large force, Helaman II felt comfortable conducting his first close passive siege of a Lamanite-controlled city. This meant that Helaman II encircled the city and completely prevented any incoming or outgoing communication or reinforcement, as implied in Alma 57.8. As a reminder, a close siege typically meant that the actual physical surrounding of the location being placed under siege was surrounded at a close distance so that both the forces would be in contact or near contact on a continual basis. They could see here and probably come into missile or even melee combat. The Lamanite army at Kumani did sally forth, quote, many times, close quote, as we are told in Alma 57.9, but in each instance they were defeated and forced to retire back into the city. The timing of the siege was well chosen, as it was linked to the provisioning of the city. The knowledge that Helaman II had in terms of timing of previous provisions had to have been provided by his theater spy network. The linking of the siege with the expectation of provisions gave an air of desperation to the Lamanite defenders, and it had to have provided some significant inspiration to the Nephite besiegers. The Nephite diligence in the siege was described by Helaman II in Alma 57.9 as sleeping on their swords, implying diligent alertness. The alert activity of the Nephites and the effectiveness of the Nephite spy network allowed Helaman II to capture those bringing provisions, possibly without a battle. The Lamanites were not foolish. They planned to reinforce the city at nightfall. The intent to conduct the resupply at night also allowed for the capture as the two forces could get very close to each other before they would be recognized. One of the goals of an ancient siege was to simply deny the besieged force all outside succor, to completely isolate them, and by so doing, defeat their will and cause a surrender. This typically took time. Helaman II enjoyed the advantage of knowing the time, or the general time, of provisions. This allowed him to make the most of their efforts. Even though he began the siege close to the reprovisioning time, and they successfully prevented the Lamanite attempt to provide provisions, it still took time to wear down the Lamanite will. Helaman II said in Alma 57.12 that it took, quote, not many days before the Lamanites began to lose all hopes of succor, close quote. Before the surrender of the city of Kumani, Helaman II still had to deal with a belligerent foe. During the continued siege, he sent the provisions to Judea and the prisoners to Zarahemla, as we are told in Alma 57.11. This dissipated the significant strength of the Nephites slightly as Helaman II divided his force in three parts. We are not told if the parts of his army who took provisions to Judea or took the prisoners to Zarahemla ever returned, though I would suppose that at least the ones who went to Judea did return before the next fighting. In Helaman 57.12, Helaman II tells us that Kumani was surrendered to the Nephites. Now we move on to the second battle or engagement. First battle with prisoners, Alma 57, 13-14. The issue of prisoners came to the fore with the surrender of Kumani, as Helaman II said in Alma 57, 13, that, quote, despite the enormity of the Nephite numbers, they were obliged to employ all their force to keep them or to put them to death, close quote. 
This is the only time where a Nephite commander refers to their own force as enormous. This was a significant admission, and it also demonstrates the challenge of defending prisoners in the ancient world. I refer you back to my comments on weapons in the ancient world. The prisoners continued to challenge the guards with the primitive weapons, causing a series of small engagements that resulted in significant casualties. Nearly 2,000, as we are told in Alma 57.14. This caused Helaman II to send a large number of guards to take the prisoners down to Zarahemla and remove them from his own responsibility. It is interesting to note that this group of Lamanite prisoners either did not or would not enter into a covenant to simply cease fighting as common with those captured by Moroni late in the same war. Second Battle with Prisoners, Alma 57, verse 18 and verses 28 to 36. Chronologically, the next engagement in this series was the battle between Gid, his guards, and the prisoners they were escorting to Zarahemla. We don't learn about this engagement until after the end of the Third Battle of Kumani, but I will address it now as I want to present events in chronological sequence. This is a great example of leadership and lessons learned as I will address it in each of those areas. Gid's mission was to get the Lamanite prisoners to Zarahemla. But as he was doing so, Nephite spies passed the group as they sought to warn Helaman II of a reinforcing Lamanite army marching toward Kumani. The Lamanite prisoners heard the exclamations of the Nephite guards and used the power of their massive bodies to run upon the swords of the Nephites, and by doing so, they were able to overwhelm the guards and break free. This was done even though more prisoners were killed than escaped. Those prisoners either returned to their army or to Lamanite-controlled lands. We do not know. What we do know is that thousands of Lamanite prisoners were killed as they sought escape, both during the first and second battles with prisoners. I would suppose the numbers to be in the neighborhood of three to 4,000 total that were killed. That makes the fighting against the prisoners to be one of the more costly battles for the Lamanites in the Amalekite War. After the prisoners ran off, Gid was faced with a choice— to continue the task to which he was assigned, which was guarding the prisoners down to Zarahemla, or to return to Kumani and reinforce Helaman II. He made the command decision to reinforce Helaman II. Third Battle of Kumani, Alma chapter 57, verses 17 to 23. I want to spend a moment discussing the geography as I suppose it to be. Kumani was south and probably west of Zarahemla. The prisoners were being marched from Kumani to Zarahemla. This meant that they would have been marching north, or generally so, and they passed the prisoners and guards commanded by Gid, meaning that the spies were coming-ish from the north. As I think the geography existed, as you can see from the sketches posted to Facebook, I think that the city of Zeezrom was somewhat in between Kumani and Zarahemla, and maybe this responding Lamanite army was sent from Zeezrom. If so, then the general geographical problems in terms of routes of march of both the prisoners and the spies makes more sense. That said, Helaman II says that the Lamanite army was driven back to Manti, which may mean that the army came from there, or just that the army was driven back in that direction. All supposition on my part, but this is me trying to appreciate the story in a real-world sense. 
I imagine that Helaman II believed that he had some time to adjust to his control of Kumani when he sent Gid and his guards off with the prisoners. Gid had to have taken thousands of men with him, as he was guarding prisoners that numbered in the thousands. This wasn't all bad. Imagine if Helaman II had been fighting the Third Battle of Kumani with thousands of Lamanite prisoners inside the walls of the city of Kumani. In such a situation, he would have been fighting a battle against enemies from without and from within. Even with the prisoners gone, the Nephites were still nearly overpowered, as we are told. I want to read Helaman II's account from Alma chapter 57, verses 17 to 23. Quote, But it came to pass that on the morrow they did return, they being Gid and his guards. And now behold, we did not inquire of them concerning the prisoners, for behold, the Lamanites were upon us, and they returned in season to save us from falling into their hands. For behold, Amron had sent to their support a new supply of provisions and also a numerous army of men. And it came to pass that those men whom they sent with the prisoners did arrive in season to check them as they were about to overpower us. But behold, my little band of 2,060 fought most desperately. Yea, they were firm before the Lamanites, and did administer death unto all those who opposed them. And as the remainder of our army were about to give way before the Lamanites, behold, those 2,060 were firm and undaunted. Yea, and they did obey and observe to perform every word of command with exactness. Yea, and even according to their faith it was done unto them. And I did remember the words which they said unto me, that their mothers had taught them. And now, behold, it was these my sons, and those men who had been selected to convey the prisoners, to whom we owe this great victory. For it was they who did beat the Lamanites. Therefore they were driven back to the city of Manti. And we retained our city Cumani, and were not all destroyed by the sword." Nevertheless, we had suffered great loss. Close quote. We don't really have any details on the conduct of the battle. I want to emphasize that the attack of the guard force would have had a similar effect as in previous battles when the Nephites were able to attack the Lamanites from different directions and create the effect of continuous attacks and being surrounded. It was the return of Gid and his guards that turned the tide of the battle and allowed the Nephites to win. The return of the prisoner guards and the stalwart defense of the Ammonite portion of the army really allowed the Nephites to hold off the attacks. Helaman II certainly had a sensitive place in his heart for his 2060 young Ammonite warriors. But even with this considered, it is interesting how significant their contribution to the Nephite army was. I ask you to reflect on my previous comments in the technical context section about formations and how that might be connected to performing every word of command with exactness. Battlefield Leadership In this section, I want to address four points of Nephite leadership. 1. Planning and Preparation Helaman II understood the situation around Kumani quite well. He knew when to begin his close siege in terms of how soon a Lamanite resupply army would be coming. This allowed him to spend a minimal amount of time in laying siege before having effect. 2. Decision to remove prisoners from the city The next decision of importance was the removal of prisoners from inside Kumani. Losing the guard force almost cost the Nephites the battle, but having the prisoners inside the city at the same time of the battle may have produced a worse result. 3. Spies 
Within this story is some greater insight as to the use of spies. Helaman too stated in Alma 5730 that the spies who passed through the group guarding the prisoners were, quote, sent to watch the camp of the Lamanites, close quote. This meant that the Nephite spies were given specific reconnaissance objectives. This was previously surmised and expected, but here there is a definitive statement as to this important assignment of missions. 4. Mission Orders The German language has a word that the U.S. military likes to say, Auftragstaktik, which means, in translation, mission orders. I won't spend too much time on the meaning of this word, but I could. In short, it means that a leader should demonstrate the type of leadership necessary for a given situation within the scope of the broader mission and objectives. Gid demonstrated this when he decided that supporting Helaman II in defending Kumanai was more important than recapturing the prisoners and completing his assigned mission. The broader objective was to defend Kumanai, and Gid understood this and adjusted his actions accordingly. Significance In taking Kumanai, Helaman II and his armies defeated three different Lamanite forces and retained a geographically important city, which left only two cities still in Lamanite control in the west, Manti and Zeezrom. Lessons Learned Military History The most significant lessons revolve around empathy and delegation. Identification Helaman II understood the Lamanite situation in Kumanai, as demonstrated by the effectual timing of his passive close siege. He also placed spies to provide warning as they observed the Lamanite camp. Helaman II also identified that keeping prisoners inside Kumanai created significant problems, and so he removed them from the area by sending them to Zarahemla. It is interesting that the Lamanites twice sent forces to Kumanai, as if Amron didn't know that the city had fallen to the Nephites. Isolation. A close, passive siege isolated the forces in Kumanai. The prisoners were guarded, which meant that they were isolated from outside support. The effort on the part of the Lamanites to resupply Kumanai was twice defeated. The return of the Nephite guards ensured that Helaman II was not isolated. Suppression. We do not know enough about the details of this battle to comment on how forces were suppressed. Maneuver. The guards and the stripling warriors, or Ammonites, demonstrated the ability to gain a position of advantage through surprise and through discipline. Destruction. There is evidence of significant loss of life on both sides, but it is clear that the Lamanite armies were defeated in each battle as they fled the battlefields. Lessons Learned Spiritual What is to be learned from the details of this campaign? I hope that the following lessons are useful. I want to emphasize that these are some lessons that I have derived, and they are not a comprehensive list of all possible lessons or even those most applicable for you in your life as you listen to this. 1. Surround the enemy I always seem to say this lesson. But it is recurring in Mormon's record. Helaman II surrounds his enemies in several ways. One, he literally surrounds a city by laying siege to it. Two, he sort of surrounds his enemy when Gid and his guards return to the fighting at the Third Battle of Kumanai. The main point here seems to me that there are different ways to accomplish this. When you or I surround a problem, we are not limited to a single way to do so. 
Be creative and also recognize that one can surround the problem in a seemingly happenstance manner outside your control, as happened when Gid showed up on the battlefield. 2. Diligent alertness. The Nephites slept on their swords, meaning that they always had their weapons with them. I recommend you to look at the meaning of sword in the armor of God as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I think the Word of God in the Ephesians 6.17 reference is Jesus Christ. In this sense, our diligent alertness is to have Jesus Christ always with us, such that we can call on Him even when awakened from sleep. 3. Guard the enemy. It isn't enough to defeat the enemy. The enemy needs to be guarded. If the enemy is internet pornography, then it isn't enough to stop looking at it. The computer needs to be guarded, maybe through filters or a special program. Most enemies are not permanently defeated. They will find a way back. This is why an alcoholic is always an alcoholic, because the enemy must be constantly guarded. 4. Remove the enemy from your midst. This is related to the previous lesson. Get the enemy away from you. Get the alcohol out of the house. Get rid of your computer, your saved images, or downloaded videos. Get it out. In moments of weakness, the very existence of an enemy can be a second front that you have to fight. 5. Timing. It isn't just that we do the right things. It also matters when we do those things. This is a powerful lesson on doing the right things at the right time. Helaman, too, begins his close passive siege a short time before the Lamanite resupply is due to arrive. Gid returns at the right time to save the third battle of Cumanai. The Ammonite sons of Helaman respond to every word of command with exactness. Each of these is about proper timing. We need to respond as and when the Lord directs us. His time is the right timing. 6. Purpose is more important than task. Gid is a fabulous example of this lesson. His task was to guard the prisoners down to the land of Zarahemla. His purpose in doing that task was to protect the city of Kumani and make sure that it stayed in Nephite control. The purpose is always more important than the task. There are times when the task will need to change to accomplish the purpose. Gid recognized that time, and he changed tasks in support of his purpose and returned to Kumani to protect the city. We need to be ready to do the same. As leaders of families and organizations, we should always provide purposes with our tasks and always let people know that the purpose has priority over the task so that they can use their individual or collective inspiration to change tasks as necessary. 7. Faith brings power. Real power in a real world. Helaman too was a prophet and a man of faith. His attribution of success in the third battle of Kumani to being a gift from God was consistent with this perspective. This is not surprising that a prophet would give glory to God for military or any temporal success. But what is important from a military history viewpoint is to appreciate that faith on the battlefield really does have a physical impact and positive role. Napoleon Bonaparte made the comment that the spirit is to the sword as three to one. 
This was a secularist view of the power of positive morale on the battlefield. He was right. Positive morale can shape and reshape battles and does and has allowed armies throughout history to do the seemingly impossible. War is a battle of wills, and those who possess a stronger will have the ability to endure greater hardships in the pursuit of their goals. The importance of this stabilizing psychological factor cannot be overestimated. I want to read Helaman II's words from Alma 57, 25-27. And it came to pass that there were 200 out of my 2,060 who had fainted because of the loss of blood. Nevertheless, according to the goodness of God and to our great astonishment and also to the joy of our whole army, there was not one soul of them who did perish. Yea, and neither was there one soul among them who had not received many wounds. And now their preservation was astonishing to our whole army. Yea, that they should be spared, while there was a thousand of our brethren who were slain. And we do justly ascribe it to the miraculous power of God, because of their exceeding faith in that which they had been taught to believe, that there was a just God, and whoever did not doubt that they should be preserved by his marvelous power." Now this was the faith of these of whom I have spoken. They are young, and their minds are firm, and they do put their trust in God continually. If belief in the supremacy of your position or people can make a tangible difference on the battlefield, then faith in the true and living God and a moral certitude that you are defending what is right— has to provide an endowment of power on the battlefield, and the greater that faith and conviction, the greater that power. Helaman II's Ammonite sons seemed to possess such faith in abundance. The power this faith gave them on the battlefield should not simply be excused as a prophet providing an after-the-fact seminary-like lesson. It had a real impact and assisted in making this group and others like them a power on the battlefield. The same can be true for us. Mormon's metaphor. How does this battle support it? Preparation. Helaman too prepared the battlefield through his planning and understanding of his enemy. He began his siege at the right moment. If he had done so too early, his army might have been exhausted or in need of its own supplies. If he showed up too late, then the Lamanite resupply would have already happened, and the Lamanites could have held out for a long time. Timing is preparation. Helaman II also managed the prisoners and guards and prepared the environment with a spy network that provided information throughout the campaign, not just on Kumani, but also on the Lamanite camp. Covenants. Covenants are not expressly mentioned in the story, but I believe that they are an important part of the story. 1. A siege in the ancient world required subordinates to do their tasks independent of instruction and guidance, as they did not enjoy constant communication. That is reflective of covenant-keeping. 2. The Lamanite prisoners did not seem to enter a covenant of nonviolence. 3. Gid, in his prioritization of purpose over task, demonstrated faithfulness to an unwritten covenant between commander and subordinate. 4. The sons of Helaman, as always, are the personification of covenant keepers. They kept their covenants with exactness. Unity. In this sequence of battles, we see unity in a variety of ways. One, we see unity in the siege 
as all of the army worked together to accomplish a single task. Two, we see unity in purpose as Helaman II, the Nephite spies, and Gid all do different things at different places to accomplish a common purpose. Three, we see unity in obedience as the sons of Helaman obey every word with exactness, maybe in the form of unified formations or maybe in some other way. Conclusion, the defeat of yet another Lamanite army, really three Lamanite armies, allowed Helaman II to continue his offensive effort to regain all of the lost Nephite cities in the Western theater. Helaman II stated in Alma 57 verse 23 that his armies had, quote, suffered great loss, close quote, in the third battle of Kumani. Mormon again will show us the truth of those words as in the next battle, which is the third battle of Manti, Helaman II changed his tactics, seemingly based on those losses. He had to use a stratagem to lure the Lamanite army out of the city rather than the more aggressive strategy he used at Kumani. The losses must have been significant, indeed, to so dramatically change the strategy. This battle is the focus of the next episode. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.